It is midday. As we prepare for our roundtable discussion on a Thursday that feels sort of like a Monday here, but uh, we'll take it. It's a two-day weekend, so that's all right. We've got Jason Jorgensen. We've got Bob Brogan. We've got Susan Littlefield ready to go to get you prepared for what's happening on midday. And so let's start with Susan. What's happening for you? Well, lots of things happening. By the way, a big shout out to our corn growers. Because of them, our fireworks are safer. So if you saw fireworks over the last uh, 24 hours, you can thank a corn grower for what they've done to make it a little bit more safe and a little bit more enjoyable as well. Speaking of crops, 1219, Keith Gluen, the Nebraska Extension Educator, talks about folks can learn in an upcoming soil health clinic that is headed their way. Then at 12.45, for the first time, scientists have confirmed a case of water hemp that has a resistance to six herbicides. We'll get more on that with some folks from the University of Missouri. And then are you wanting to have a role in your local FSA office? Your opportunity might be coming your way. Bobby Chris Wickham joins me at 117 as we talk about the role of being nominated for your local FSA. All right. Thank you very much. Did you get a, a bunch of rain in the uh, Surprise metro area yesterday? We did, and that's why our fireworks have been put off now till Saturday. We got some wind and low clouds and, and rain, so we pushed them back. But we'll take rain any day. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Susan. Jason, we look at the sports world. Kind of a an off time right now. It's again. a little slow. It's a little slow. <laughs> but the fortnight at uh, yes. is a which I love that word. It, yeah. And I always remember being in high school English class, our instructor at the time, he said, can any of you kids tell me what Fortnite means? And I knew. Because and he said, Mr. Jorgensen, how do you know that? And I said, because of Wimbledon. There you go. And I remember he was pretty impressed and surprised all in one motion. You know, <laughs> to, I remember, I have a very clear memory of, July 4th time watching Bjorn Borg and Yvonne Lindell and some of those guys and Johnny Mack play. Back when tennis was tennis. That's right. <laughs> so we'll let you know how things are going at Wimbledon today. Also, there's lots of baseball to talk about. Justin Verlander tries to stop a personal slide as the Astros open up a series against the White Sox. That'll probably happen. <laughs> I was going to say, if you want to stop a personal slide, you might want to take on the White Sox. Or the Royals. Or the Royals. You know, you've got to like your shot there. Also, Joe Maurer needs one double to give him 415 in his career. That would break a tie with the late Hall of Famer Kirby Puckett. The Twins have also struggled. They have not nearly been as good this year as they uh, had hoped to be. And uh, the Nationals, that's another team that was supposed to be pretty solid this year. They continue to struggle. They're, uh, they've dropped five in a row, so there's some teams going one direction and a bunch of going in the other. Well, the Braves have really picked oh, it up in yeah. that division, too, mm-hmm. so that, that has changed things. Bob, did the, the, the stockbrokers come back from the one-day uh, vacation in a better mood? They sure did, and uh, by golly, they uh, chalked one up for the big guy. U.S. stocks moved higher in midday trading today. Also, um, Angela Merkel says she would be willing to cut back on tariffs on U.S. cars imported to the European Union as part of a deal. So they're willing to negotiate just a little bit there. Those are some of the stories making the the business headlines today. All right, lots to talk about today. Let's continue our midday discussion with Dewey Nelson. 
Dewey Nelson with a market update on the Rural Radio Network. Double-digit gains in wheat today due to bad weather in Russia, Europe, and Australia. Soybean prices are down about 14% on the month. Traders are pricing in the likely impact of tariff trades. Meanwhile, corn's been fluctuating. Right now, lower. July down a quarter, 342 and a half. September, 350 and three quarters, down one and a quarter. December, 363 and a quarter, down one. July soybeans, 838 and a quarter, down five and three quarters. August, 841 and three quarters, down six and a quarter. And November at 858 and a half, down five and three quarters. Chicago, July wheat, 504 and three quarters, up 13 and a quarter. September, 503 and a half, up 12 and a half. Kansas City, July, 481 and a half, up 19 and a quarter. September, 501 and a quarter, up 17 and three quarters. Minneapolis, July wheat, 540 and a half, up 21, but September's up 10 and a half, 545 and three quarters. Cattle continue to rally. August live cattle, 107.05, up 60. October, 110.70, also up 60. December, 114.45, up 30. And February, up 30 at 117.02. August feeders, 152.97, up 17. September, 153.02, up 42. October, 152.82, up 60. November, 152.72, up 52. Hogs mix, July at 83.67, down 5. August, 76.25, up 25. October's up 5 at 59.82. The Dow is up 177 at 24,352. NASDAQ now 71 higher at 7,574. S&P 500 up 12 at 2,735. Every season, you try to raise the bar to achieve your best corn yield ever. But disease can stand in the way. Like gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, anthracnose leaf blight, and southern rust. New Delaro fungicide can stop them. Two different modes of action work on the diseases for the entire spray interval, delivering best-in-class dual mode of action residual efficacy for extended performance. It's the help you need for personal best yields. Keep raising the bar with Delaro from Bayer. Always read and follow label instructions. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our determination, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Options to expand in 2019. I'm Shaylee Peters joining you now on the Rural Radio Network as we take a look at your midday ag news for a Thursday. Health insurance costs have reached a desperation point for many farmers, with some premiums rising 60 to 200 percent. The choice for some comes down to keeping the farm together or paying for health insurance this year. In some cases, 25 to 30 percent of their total farm income is being spent on health costs for their family alone, said Michelle Smith, vice president of human capital for Family Farms Group based in Brighton, Illinois. Two weeks ago, the Trump administration announced a new option, Association Health plans that allow employer groups and associations to provide health coverage that does not have to be entirely Affordable Care Act 
compliant. These types of plans aren't entirely new. They've been available since 1993 in Tennessee. Our plans look like health plans prior to 2010, explained Ryan Brown, general counsel with Farm Bureau Health Plans in Columbia, Tennessee. They are medically underwritten and have a pre-existing condition waiting period of six months. Also, some preventative measures are not covered in our plans, Brown said. In Iowa, the Iowa Farm Bureau will begin offering non-ACA compliant health plans in 2019 after a state law passed this spring. However, there are some drawbacks. Non-compliant plans come with more restrictions. For many, you need to be healthy to qualify and you can't receive government premium subsidies. These plans also offer less coverage than ACA compliant policies. Another option is reimbursement plans. These reimbursement plans allow an employer to pay for medical expenses of their employees with pre-tax dollars. The main beneficiaries of these plans are employees who have ACA-compliant health plans but do not receive a subsidy. With these Section 105 reimbursement plans, if your spouse is your only employee, 100% of the family's medical expenses are exempt from state and federal income tax and from payroll taxes. And agricultural producer sentiment rose slightly in June, according to the Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. The increase was unexpected given unresolved trade war concerns and sharp price declines for key commodities, including corn, wheat, and especially soybeans during the month. In June, we saw a sizable drop in commodity prices that caught many observers by surprise, says James Miner, the barometer's principal investigator and director of Purdue University's Center of Commercial Agriculture. But despite the price decline, producers' appraisal of current economic conditions improved compared to May. However, it was clear from survey responses that uncertainty regarding the agricultural outlook increased considerably. And according to the July 2nd USDA NAS Kansas Crop Progress and Condition Report, Winter wheat mature was 97% due to harvest rains and increased wheat pressure. Kansas State University Department of Agronomy updated and reissued its pre-harvest weed control in wheat. Del Prink, general manager of Midway Co-op Association in Osborne County, reported being 80% done with harvest in the area. Prink said yields are anywhere from 15 to 35 bushels per acre with a lot of weeds because of the rain. He says proteins are averaging around 13.5%. Yields are down 40% in comparison to previous years, but proteins are higher than normal, Prink said. We had two rains in the area, and we would be done by now if we hadn't. We were set back about 10 days from the rain. Also because of the rain, Prink said the quality of the wheat has gone down and dockage has become more prevalent because of weeds in the area. That's a quick check of your midday ag news. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Nebraska Extension will host a soil health clinic on July 18th. Good afternoon. I'm Alex Wojcicki on the Rural Radio Network. And joining me to provide details is Keith Gluen, a Nebraska Extension educator. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. And first of all, what is this clinic all about? Very well. Thank you, Alex. You know, soil, in my opinion, is something we, we as a, a society take for granted. It is the foundation of our livelihood, and in some cases we abuse it. Our participants typically are people involved with agriculture, but if you're no longer farming or 
if you've never farmed and you have a garden or if you just want to learn more about the dynamics of soil, this is a great opportunity. And some of the things that uh, participants will have a better understanding of after they participate in this clinic is measuring the um, or understanding the physical, chemical, and biological properties of the soil, which are part of this soil health equation. We know that there are things we can do to the soil that can influence the health of it, and so participants will get a better understanding about bulk density. What is that? Uh, what is porosity? And how does that affect infiltration? How does compaction influence infiltration and percolation of soil water? They'll also have a better understanding of landscape position and how soils differ depending upon where they're located and a position of, in a field. Biology is one that's a very complex and so participants will have a better understanding of what's all involved in soil biology. What are some of the things we can do as stewards of the soil to improve the biological makeup which may influence nutrient availability to plants, the ability to be resilient when uh, we have adverse weather conditions, chemical properties, better understanding of the chemical properties such as pH, electric conductivity, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus situations. So it's a full day of training and participants will have a resource book that they can take home. They'll be involved with hands-on evaluation of soils for all these different items I just talked about. The one thing I can tell you is that if at the end of the day you feel you didn't have a good experience and it wasn't worth your registration fee, we'll refund your money. And for folks who are interested in attending this clinic, where should they go? Excellent question, Alex. And my best answer is go to cropwatch.unl.edu and you'll find a link there for the Soil Health Clinic scheduled for Wednesday, July 18th. There is a $95 registration fee. If you register the day before, it's going to cost you a little bit more. But like I said, if you feel you didn't have a good experience, didn't learn anything, it wasn't worth your money to participate, I'd be more than happy to refund their registration fee. Well, we certainly thank you for providing us with those details. Again, that was Nebraska Extension Educator Keith Gluen discussing the upcoming Soil Health Clinic. From the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, I'm Alex Wojcicki on the Rural Radio Network. Time for us to check in on sports with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Scott. Well, Novak Djokovic overcame an apparent thigh problem to reach the third round at Wimbledon. He called for a trainer and had his left leg massaged when leading 4-3 to three in the third, but easily held serve in the next game to close out the match. Another Wimbledon news, top-ranked Rafael Nadal advanced with a straight-set win today on center court. In baseball, Justin Verlander looks to stop a personal slide as the Astros open up a series against the White Sox. 
Verlander has allowed nine runs in 11 and two-thirds innings over his past two starts, taking losses to Toronto and Tampa Bay. Carlos Rodon is on the mound for Chicago. Joe Maurer needs just one double to give him 415 in his career. That would break a tie with the late Hall of Famer Kirby Puckett for the Twins franchise record. Now, Minnesota has been reeling. They have dropped six straight, and they return home from an, a 1-8 road trip to play Baltimore, which has the worst record in the majors at 24-61. and And the Nationals open up a series against Miami, looking to end a five-game skid and get back to 500. Washington fell to 42-43 and with a loss to Boston yesterday. It's the first time the preseason NL East favorites have been under 500 this late in the year since late August of 2015. Well, this one may have snuck past you uh, over the 4th of July. The University of Colorado looks like they are going to secure a new naming rights partner for its basketball and volleyball arena by dropping the title Coors Event Center in exchange for CU Event Center. Now, the arena, whose construction was completed in 1979, received its previous name in 1990 when the Coors Foundation made a one-time $5 million donation to help build that athletic center on campus. CU Athletic Director Rick George reached out to the Coors Foundation officials and family members to gauge interest in a new financial commitment, but both parties declined. College stadium naming rights have exploded in value during the modern sports era. For example, USC will receive $69 million over 16 years for United Airlines from its brand on the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, and Alaska Airlines will dish out $41 million over a decade for naming rights, the University of Washington's Husky Stadium. And Georgia quarterback Jake Fromm has a broken bone in his left hand, but isn't expected to miss any summer workouts. School athletic spokesman said that Fromm has a small fracture in his non-throwing hand. Now he's already throwing the football. Fromm won the starting job as a freshman last year and led the Bulldogs to the SEC championship before losing in overtime to Alabama for the national championship. He will face competition this year from highly touted freshman Justin Fields. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Dave Schroeder, partly cloudy with a chance of thunderstorms in the west and south tonight, lows in the 60s. I'm Dave Schroeder. A group that's seeking to expand Medicaid in Nebraska says it's collected more than enough signatures to place the issue on the November general election ballot. Insurer The Good Life announced today that it has gathered more than 133,000 signatures, well above the required minimum of 85,000 signatures. The petitions are due to Secretary of State John Gale's office by this afternoon. The signatures still need to be verified, a process that will take weeks. The measure would provide health care coverage to an estimated 90,000 people who earn too much to qualify for regular Medicaid, but too little to be eligible for financial assistance available under the Affordable Care Act. Maine was the first state to expand Medicaid through a ballot measure. Idaho and Utah have similar measures pending. Storms crossed through the state from southwest into eastern Nebraska overnight. A large tree fell on a home in Milligan, causing roof damage. A few farmsteads were damaged south of Sutton, Nebraska, including carports that were destroyed and also a roof of a garage severely damaged. Also, a rain amounts last night. There was a, over five and a half inches reported about three miles east-southeast of Hampton and more than five inches 
near Dimbar, which is in Rooks County, Kansas. Severe thunderstorms knocked out power to nearly 7,000 residents around the Omaha area last night. All was restored except for about 300 as of early this morning. In Papillion, a 45-year-old woman was struck in the head by a tree branch that fell during the storms. She was taken to the hospital in critical condition. In addition to the education, research, and economic development, the mission of the University of Nebraska at Kearney campuses extends into another key area. Doug Christensen, Chancellor, talks about UNK's role in developing rural human infrastructure. We've got to begin to address what are the fundamental needs of rural Nebraska and what are we going to need to keep this part of the state vital, relevant, and quite frankly, economically healthy. And so I think UNK's role in all of this is we've got to be able to educate people with a high-quality education, keep them in the community, and particularly the rural community. So if we can do that, that's really what I think our mission is. Christensen cited a recent study showing that one-third of Nebraska counties have three lawyers or less, and 11 have no lawyers at all. Another study showed that more than 75% of Nebraska counties have three or fewer real estate appraisers, and 30 of them have none. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Six-Way Herbicide Resistance. Good afternoon to you on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bryce Duskett reporting. For the first time, scientists have confirmed a case of water hemp that has resistance to six herbicides. It started when a farmer in north-central Missouri reported a population of water hemp that was resistant to 2,4-D. University of Missouri researchers are brought in. Lavreed Shergill is a postdoctoral research associate. This farmer in uh, central Missouri, that's Randall County, Missouri, uh, he had been using 240 in his burn-down application. So he also used Fomisifin, that's Flexstar, and glyphosate with the burn-downs. So he had been using this for several years, and uh, he reported that he can't. Con- he, he was unable to control uh, this water hemp population in his field with these applications. So he suspected that uh, maybe it's resistant to 240. So we conducted this research uh, to investigate the potential of uh, 2,4-D and multiple resistance in this population. Uh, during this research, first of all, we conducted the bare ground field trials at his field, and we tested uh, eight different herbicides, uh, and uh, out of which six uh, six didn't work. We also conducted uh, some greenhouse uh, research uh, at the University of Missouri, and uh, that we confirmed the same results in the greenhouse as well. And we also studied the gene setting and stuff like that. I can add on that too. So basically dicamba and glufosinate were the only herbicides which worked out of the eight. And this population was resistant to 2,4-D, etrazine, formacepin, and glyphosate, and mesotrion. So diff- different six different groups of herbicides. It is incredibly fascinating, that, that research. And we'll, we'll get to more of that in a moment, but what led to this? Is it just the over-application or the repeated application on water hemp specifically of these different uh, chemicals, or, or what led to this? What we think right now is, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the over-application of these herbicides, as I, as I told you, like, uh, they have, uh, he, was, he was using 240 repeatedly over several years, uh, even uh, PPO inhibitor, formicitin, and then glyphosate. So there, there is a there is a good amount of chance that this was responsible for selecting this population for resistance to 240. 
uh, and the farmer uh, also loves soybeans, so he was just growing more of the soybean in his fields. So that was another thing that using uh, same kind of herbicides year after year selects these populations, and we have this multiple resistant population, which is resistant to like six different groups of herbicides. This is scary, frankly, for corn and soybean farmers, specifically soybean farmers, because that's what this re- that's your it research is. here. If folks are listening right now and they're and they're frankly a little scared to hear this, what can they do to prevent this? And what has your research told us so far that they should be doing right now to avoid this down the road for them? We recommend uh, in these kind of situations is always in any wheat uh, for in, for a really effective wheat control uh, program, it should be an integrated approach. Relying only on herbicides uh, in any system will lead to resistance to multiple herbicides. So right now they should be, especially uh, farmer over there, they should be rotating crops and using other cultural practices, uh, just not herbicides, uh, different crops and tillage, and because people are sometimes they're just relying on conservation tillage. So just mixing up all those things and using other mechanical methods and uh, there are a few new things coming up which are still in research which can be added later like harvest weed seed control what's been the reaction since this was published over the past couple of months obviously you got the ag media with myself's attention here but what have you heard from folks when they see these results nobody wants to hear this news you know we didn't want to confirm this like okay your population is resistant to six different groups of herbicides yeah, I have presented this work at different uh, conferences, and people, they are, when they see this, then they say, oh, this is, this is not good, you know, uh, this should not happen, like, it will eventually happen, but we should, we should be doing uh, things, or we should be do, uh, developing practices which, which can delay these things, so people are a bit scared, because uh, there is a lot of research, and there is a lot of industry money which is in there, which are uh, developing these traits that uh, like 240 resistant traits and soybeans and other crops. So there is a lot of interest from industry as well. What else do you want to add about your research or on this topic while we have you on the line? The thing is, like when we say that this population is resistant to six group of herbicides, what I want to emphasize over here is we are not saying that you can just uh, throw these uh, different herbicides out of the window. What we found in our research was uh, like only 16% of the plants were resistant to all six groups of herbicides at the field level. And then we have uh, uh, like uh, plants were resistant to five different groups of herbicides, like 23% plants. So it goes up to like 99% of the plants were resistant to multiple herbicides. But uh, what I want to emphasize over here is that there are plants which are still susceptible to those herbicides from those six different groups of herbicides. So these herbicides can still be used in mixtures to, uh, to manage these populations. But the thing is, like, you, you don't have to just uh, keep on overdoing it so that you select the, pop, uh, select the plants which are resistant to all the six. So there is still hope that we can use these herbicides, but we need to use them in a diversified approach with other methods of weed control. That was Lovreed Shergill. He's a postdoctoral research associate for the University of Missouri. From the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, I'm Bryce Duskit on the Rural Radio Network.
Dewey Nelson with a market update on the World Radio Network. And shortly before the close, we still see the double-digit gains in the wheat due to uh, adverse weather in other parts of the world. Meanwhile, soybeans are lower. The November contract down to a two-and-a-half-year low. Corn fractionally higher with September 352 and three quarters, December 365, both up three quarters. August soybeans 840 and a quarter, down seven and three quarters. September 845 and three quarters, down eight. November 856 and a half, down seven and three quarters. Chicago September wheat 505 and a half, up 14 and a half. December 519 and three quarters, up 13 and a quarter. Kansas City September wheat 502 and a quarter up 18 and a quarter December 524 up 17 and three quarters Minneapolis September wheat 548 and a half up 13 and a quarter We settled mixed in the livestock futures trade August live cattle 107 that should be 10637 down 7 October 11012 up 2 December 11427 up 12 February settled 116.87, up 15. August feeder cattle at 152.57, down 22. September 152.57, down 2. October 152.52, up 30. November 152.55, up 35. July lean hogs settled at 83.30, that was down 42. August was up 5 at 76.05, and October. 59.55, down 22. The Dow Industrial Average now up 90 at 24,263. The Nasdaq up 52 at 7,554. S&P 500 up 14 at 2,727. Hey guys, it's Shaylee, and we are excited once again this year to be bringing you Fridays in the Field. Every Friday, we'll make our way from the northeast part of the state. Hi, this is Susan Littlefield. I'm headed just south of Columbus to Bellwood and Bruce Schmidt. Bruce will keep us up to date on how the crops are growing, not only in his plots, but in the field. And then travel a little further southwest into central Nebraska. Hi, this is Clay Patton, and this year's Friday in the Field takes us to Dawson County, where I'm talking with Barbiti as he takes us through his fields in the 2018 growing year. And finally, make our way to the Panhandle to really showcase the diversity in Nebraska crops. Hello from western Nebraska. I'm Chabella Guzman, and join me on Fridays over the next few months as we talk with farmer Chris Cullen in Hemingford about everything from wheat to sugar beets and more. You won't want to miss a minute of our Fridays in the Field coverage for 2018. Keep up with all of our audio and video by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter, and visiting RuralRadio.com. Let's review the livestock futures trade. Joe Teal of Great Plains Commodities, unavailable today. The firm price support slowly trickled into the live cattle trade with 30 to 50 cent higher money at midday today. Overall trade volume today, though, was sluggish. A few traders in the market were focusing on adjusting prices, at least on expectations of current demand and the potential that additional technical support may move into the market through the month of July. However, we saw the cash market still undeveloped today. Packers were starting to float a few bids, and they were a little bit higher than last week's lower bids. Bids today were at 108 to 110 live basis and 170 on address trade. Of course, asking prices still well above those levels. But August couldn't uh, hold the gain and actually finished seven lower. The feeder cattle trade was also mixed today. 
light to moderate buyer support slowly tricking, trickling into that complex as well. But short term, very limited activity redeveloping. And the lean hogs were mostly lower except that August contract today. The trade activity left the overall market directionless, though. Traders returned from the Independence Day holiday, and it appears that overall trade activity was going to be sluggish today. In fact, a lot of traders still staying out of the market. Generally expected as overall participation in the market likely to be sluggish through tomorrow. That's because when the fall holiday falls at midweek, it typically keeps market interest sluggish all week long. Total cattle slaughter through this holiday shortened week so far, 235,000, 2,000 more than the same holiday shortened week a year ago. This is the Rural Radio Network. Have you ever thought about serving on your county farm service agency board? Well, the opportunity could be coming your way. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Bobby Chris Wickham is a public affairs outreach coordinator for the Nebraska State Office of the Farm Service Agency. With an August 1st deadline for nominations, she explains what it all entails to serve on the county level. Right. Um, the first thing they need to do is stop into their local uh, USDA Farm Service Agency county office. There are kind of four key things that um, a producer needs to, to qualify, and they're pretty, pretty basic. You know, they have to participate in a Farm Service Agency program. Um, you have to reside within the local administrative area that's up for election. Um, be eligible to vote, um, you know, as a U.S. citizen of legal voting age. And then just not have previously been removed from COC membership or FSA employment or anything like that. So, so really, if you're a producer who utilizes FSA programs and you're in the local administrative area in your county that's up for election, you know, we want you to think about becoming a candidate. What are some things, what are some job responsibilities of somebody once they're elected and put into that role on the county level? Right. You know, county committees really are kind of unique uh, to Farm Service Agency. They uh, provide input on the management of really the local FSA office. So this is includes responsibility for actually hiring the county executive director if um, someone needs to come into that role and, and kind of oversight of, of county office operations. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, helping ensure the equitable administration of commodity and disaster and conservation programs, um, which means they basically work with the county executive director to ensure that programs are managed as they're required to be managed uh, through the directives that the national office has for us on these programs. And what a neat opportunity, though, to be able to, to serve in that role, knowing that they're having an effect not only on the county level, but there's other counties as well doing the same thing that they are all across the nation. Oh, most definitely. They, you know, these county committee members, they're, they're producers, the producer's voice on issues. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, if, if there's concerns, they can pass those concerns, you know, up the chain to the Nebraska FSA State Committee. Um, uh, they help make sure that there's that two-way communication, right? So it's good for to have farmer, rancher, uh, COC members to represent local ag, but it's also good for our FSA employees to be able to work back with those ag producers so that they understand our programs as well and and why we do what we do so it's great two-way communication 
Bobby, how does the the county level affect what happens on the state level and vice versa? Well, you know, our our programs are established first in the Farm Bill, and then we have regulations that that accompany um, that law that's been passed. Um, But there's always some um, things that need to be determined at the county level uh, for some of these programs. And, you know, sometimes there's also issues that come up, and so if those are pretty consistent problems at a county level that they're seeing, they can pass those concerns up to the FSA State Committee, which is an appointed committee, um, and that state committee can choose to pass that on up to Washington, D.C., and the officials there, um, at least just to get feedback on programs. A conversation with Bobby Criswickham with the Nebraska FSA office. Just a reminder, you do have a deadline of August 1st to put those nominations in place. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. And what a day it was for soybeans, but I guess maybe it was expected. We're joined by John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing Chicago, and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Whoops, November soybeans down to a two-and-a-half-year low, John. Yeah, big big mixed signal here. So just from somebody who's watching corn, you know, you got said beans is down, beans would be down a certain percentage point. You say, oh, well, everything should be down then, and you look up and wheat's up 4%. It's yeah. like, oh, and corn's just stuck in the middle. So beans broke the low that previous Tuesday was the 19th of June that we really made a flush low and then came all the way back we traded like 865 and then ended up trading above $9 in the same day uh, that that has now all been taken away and, and we're below that low now and it kind of scares me for corn I think kind of points towards a run there back to, to the sub 360 level um, you know these tariffs again I'm going to kind of lean on this don't really have a lot to do with corn but they're getting washed up and the fact that we tire you know, should spell some good good news for corn. A dollar fifty spread between Casey and Chicago is typically a pretty good bullish move for corn to be expected, or a bearish move in wheat. And get, or given that we were up four percent today, you know, you think maybe corn has better days ahead. Uh, we'll find out about you know the tariff announcements or what's going to happen here. I think we'll get a little more clarity tonight uh, as China's day starts. They'll start. I imagine the tariffs are going to go through, and then. You know, I got a news flash for everybody. The sun's going to rise, and uh, we're all going to have to kind of figure out what what happens then. I, I can I can't promise a lot, but I can't promise the world will continue to need soy, and China will continue to import. Whether they buy them from the U.S. is simply a uh, I think a question of logistics at this point. They will buy U.S. beans. Whether they buy them from Brazil, buy U.S. beans through Brazil, I think is the question. All right, now let's move to that wheat complex and why we saw the rally today. This must have to do with other parts of the world and their weather. Yeah, we did. We got kind of bullish news out of Europe. Uh, Germany, Poland, kind of that central part of, of uh, Europe is in trouble here, very dry. Uh, throw that in the fact that, that uh, early harvests in, in Russia are not going well. I've heard 25% uh, yield cuts year over year. So you're looking at a potential crop that's, you know, 20, 30% lower than where it was last year. So that, that should be bullish. And, again, I think with wheat, if you take the game plan of last year's, we got a rally at this time of the year. And it really rallied hard, and then it all fell apart as we got into September. So I expect a bounce. I think it should pull corn, too. I, you know, I do think that there's some upside. Uh, I, I'd like to think we can get over 370. We tried it today, and it failed. Um, but for me, I think 380 is kind of the, the, the place where you probably press to a decision uh, save some fuel for some sales there but in the meantime if you got excess supply I, I think selling it a little bit earlier makes sense given that we're going to have har- early harvest this year thanks john john payne senior marketing analyst daniels ag marketing in chicago go to danielsagmarketing.com this is the rural radio network